before I start, just a reminder, some of you ask about membership classes, and we will start those tonight. Um, we are offering four different options for those. You only have to attend one of them. Tonight is 6 o'clock, and we're in one of these rooms over here. I think it says in the bulletin. Um, we'll be Wednesday night, the following Wednesday night, then the last Sunday night of the month, and just have to attend one of those. Um, membership obviously is not required. There's nothing in the Bible about membership. don't have to be a member of a church to be a Christian. Um, but we offer membership for those who like a deeper commitment. We have a problem in our society, and that problem is a lack of commitment. We are committed in our society not to be committed. And we think that's not a good thing. It's good to be committed to different groups, and one of those groups would be a local church. If you'd like to come tonight for an information class, if you'd like to come tonight for an information class, uh, with some information about our church and who we are and who we desire to be. With no pressure on joining, uh, we would invite you to be here tonight at 6 o'clock. Also, on May the 5th, we're going to have baptisms. There's some of you who uh, have made a profession of faith and you know you're Christian, but you've never submitted yourselves to the baptismal waters. You've never gone public with your faith. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that on the first Sunday in May. We're going to buy t-shirts for all of you, and uh, you will be baptized in the t-shirt that says going public, and that's what you will be doing with your faith. You'll be going public. And so um, I'd like to have you come talk to me about that, and I need to have some words with you before that event. And so if you're interested in that, we'll have baptisms on, on, on May the 5th. We're also going to have it on, on April the 28th because there's one family of three that can't be here on the 5th. And, but so if either one of those dates would work for you, would you talk to me about that? If you have your Bible, would you open it, please, to the seventh chapter of Luke. There are Bibles close to all the doors here. And if you grab one of the, uh, those Bibles, one has a red cover. The print is larger. It's page 1,606. And if you have a uh, Bible with a black cover, it's page 721. The Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the Gospels, and the Gospels are called the Gospels because Jesus' words are written uh, in those uh, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I had an had a amazing thing happen to me this week that encouraged me tremendously. One of the people that I led to the Lord after our Easter Sunday service and was an Easter visitor I took him out and I brought, bought him a Bible. He didn't have a Bible. And I took him out and I bought him a Bible. And he texted me this week and said, um, what do the red letters in the Bible mean? And boy, that encouraged me so much. Because that means we're reaching the people that we need to reach. And we need to have a church full of people that don't know what the red letters mean. If, if, we're, if we're doing what Jesus has called us to be able to do. You know, if you have a pe uh, people that don't know what the red letters mean, it means you have a lot of baby Christians, as the Bible calls a new Christian. And what do babies do? They just mess all over the place, right? And, and if you have a lot of new Christians, you're going to have messes all over the place. But it's worth it. And uh, many of us, when we were brand new Christians, we were just messing all over the place too. And there were some older people in Christ that put their arm around us and graciously taught us and discipled us 
I was encouraged so, so much this week uh, to say, hey, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're reaching people who don't know what the red letters in the Bible mean. And I don't want to take, I don't want to take uh, anything for granted. And sometimes we do that too much in the church that people just know that kind of stuff. I probably bet my bottom dollar that everybody right here in the sound of my voice don't know what the red letters in the Bible means. For those of you that don't know that, those are the words Jesus spoke. And, um, and I encourage you to be able to hear some of these words that are in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. And I'm going to start the reading in verse 36, and it should be on the screen behind me. When one of the Pharisees, and we learn later that that Pharisee's name is Simon, when one of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were just nothing more than real religious people, super-duper religious people, the most religious people of the day, at least they thought themselves to be so. When one of the Pharisees, Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, your translation may say a moral life. Most biblical scholars seem to think that this was uh, a prostitute. When a woman that, in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there when, with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them on her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. This lady's a sinner. And why would any good religious person allow a sinner to touch him? Is the attitude of Simon the Pharisee. Jump down to verse 44. Then he, being Jesus, turned toward the woman motioning to her but he was talking to simon the pharisee do you see this woman i came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet tradition in that culture uh, as they used sandals and walked on dusty roads they walked into someone's house and their feet were all dirty and the tradition was to uh, be able to wash their feet for them it was just hospitality to be able to do that and jesus says you didn't um you didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and kissed them in her, and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little... Loves little. Some of your translations say she loves much because she has been forgiven much. And those who have been forgiven little love little. Those of us who have been forgiven lots and understand the depth of what we've been forgiven and the depth of our sin, we have much to be grateful for. And the Bible says those who love much have been forgiven much. And those who love little don't really understand what Jesus has done for them. 48, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. My question for us this morning is, where's that woman supposed to go? 
Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I ask us, where is that outcast, that sinful, immoral prostitute, the one who, who was, was talked about with Snickers, the one who well, no one would make eye contact with, the one who people think they weren't like her, the, the one who made her live in laying on her back, the, the, the one who was at the bottom of society? Where is that woman supposed to go? This woman that has a label, in fact, even Simon the Pharisee said, she's a sinner. Where's this woman that has a name like that? Immoral woman, prostitute, whore. Where's that woman supposed to go? Jesus said, go in peace. Where's she supposed to go? To find friends, to be included, to be accepted, to have somebody to... to to identify with, to have somebody that put their arm around her and weep with her when she weeps and, and, and laugh with her when she laughs. Where's that woman supposed to go? Some of you remember the story in Luke 19 about Zacchaeus. Some of you were taught in Sunday school that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Zacchaeus, the Bible says, was a, a chief tax collector, a wealthy man. Tax collector in that society were hated people because the only way the tax collector made any money was to be able to charge the tax that Rome wanted him to charge, but then a little extra, and he took what was over the top. So I would go to Kevin and say, Kevin, you owe me $125 in tax to Rome, and, and really what he owed was 100 and I would just keep the 25 So I made my money extorting other people, other Jewish people. They were hated people. And this man must have been very successful at it because the Bible says he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. This was an outcast of society. This was a man that was not liked. This was a man that was shunned. This was a man that was not included in the society of that day. And Zacchaeus, this wee little man, climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus. And Jesus sees him up there and says, I must go to your house today. And so they go to the house. Zacchaeus says, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll restore that four times. That's where maybe we hear talk about restitution sometimes. And at the end of that story, Jesus says this to Zacchaeus. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too, not only you all out here are good Jews, not only you are sons and daughters of Abraham, not only are you all good Hebrews, this man is a son of Abraham too. For Jesus came, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This man should be included in your society too because he's a son of Abraham too. So where does, where does Zacchaeus go to, um, to find friends and be accepted? And, and where does Zacchaeus go to, to, to be in a Sunday school class and be in a small group and and who, who does Zacchaeus go to, to have supper with? And who does he go to McDonald's with? And, and who does he hang out with? And, and because he's an outcast, an extorter, a turncoat, a traitor, carpetbagger. You go to John chapter 8, it's the story of of the adulterous woman and the guys are there with the rocks in their hands and they're ready to be able to to stone her and jesus evidently is writing something in the sand and we have no idea what that is and he basically says to the guys 
you who is without sin, you cast the first stone. And one by one, I imagine, those guys dropped their stones. Scripture records in John 8, Jesus straightened up because he, uh, he was sitting on the ground, drawn in the sand. He says, Jesus straightened up and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Some of your translations say go and sin no more. Where is that lady supposed to go? Where is this adulterous woman? This tramp? This unfaithful woman? This woman who's broken her marriage vows? This woman who's turned the back on her husband? Well, where is she supposed to go? for acceptance and inclusion. And where, where is she supposed to go? Not just to find friendly people, but a place to find friends, and that's a huge difference between a place where you can find friendly people and a place where you can find friends. They're two completely different things. Where is that woman supposed to go, that outcast of society? Acts chapter 9 reveals to us a little bit about Saul, and, and, and Saul was Saul of Tarsus. And, in, and I think in Acts 6 or 7, he stood there at the stoning of Stephen. And he, he was holding the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. So he was probably in charge of that and gave okay to that. And then after the stoning of Stephen and, and the murdering of Stephen, he, he, the Bible says he had papers in his hand and hatred in his heart. And he was going out to Damascus to do the same to more Christians. His own autobiography says he was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. He was, he was a religious guy, and he was persecuting this new sect that was led by the Nazarene. And so on his way to Damascus, you know the story. God strikes him off of his horse. He blinds him. He, he comes into his life. He shows him the truth of Jesus the Nazarene. And then I wonder where he's supposed to go because he's been a murderer he's been a notorious murderer he has persecuted the faith and now he's supposed to go into synagogues or he's supposed to go with all the other disciples in fact the, the scripture says when he came to jerusalem he tried to join the disciples he tried to go to church he tried to get with all the followers of jesus but they were afraid of him i don't put the disciples down this is a saul of tarsus he tried to join them. He tried to be included. He tried to be accepted. He went where he's supposed to go. He's been saved by Jesus. Now where do you go? You go to where the followers are. I got saved on a Sunday morning in August, and, and, and the next day I was a school teacher, and I went to taught school and got out of school at 3.30 or whatever time it was. And you know where I went in my first full day as a Christian? I went straight to a Christian bookstore because I didn't have any Christians to hang around with. And I knew if I'd just hang around with my old friends, we'd go to the Ramada Inn to the off-track betting place and do the things that we always used to do. And I knew that as a, a, as a Christian, I couldn't hang out in that type of an environment anymore. And, and, and so I just went the only place I knew that I could be able to be around Christian stuff. And I went there after school and stayed there to supper time just so I could be in a Christian environment, so I could feel accepted, so I could feel around like-minded people. But they were afraid of him not believing that he was really a disciple. I don't blame him for not believing he's really a disciple. He's just faking it so he can kill some more of them. Or he's just spying so he can get an inside track on their strategies. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas puts his arm around him and said, this guy's with me. I vouch for this guy. This guy's okay. You can accept this guy. He needed one of them to be able to step up and accept him and say, this guy is okay. So when the outcast and the prostitutes and the sinful women and the immoral women and, and the adulterous women and, and, the, and the extortionist and, 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 and the murderers, the, the persecutors of the faith, when they come to faith, where do they go that they can be accepted and loved and nurtured and, and not a friendly place, a place where they can find friends? And as the pastor of this church, may I speak for all of us and say they can come here They can come here. Because when they come here and sit down, they'll be sitting beside other people who have committed adultery. They're, they're around us, men and women. They'll sit beside other people that got all kinds of issues like drug abuse and addictions to drugs and pornography. Some people have been freed from that. Some people still struggling. They're sitting right here, amongst us right here. Other outcasts. Other people who do things that nobody else knows. They, they will sit around people that, that uh, uh, have alcohol problems. Some have been freed from that. Some have not yet been freed from that. They'll sit next to people who have had abortions or, or have paid for abortions right here amongst us. They'll sit at least, beside at least one person in this church who was a homosexual and has got freedom from that. Friends, I want to pastor a church that people like the sinful and moral woman, the wealthy tax collector who's been extorting the adulterous woman, the persecutor of Christians can be able to come and be accepted and included and invited to your small groups, invited to your Sunday school class and go to Fazoli's with you. I don't want them to come to a friendly place. I want them to come to a place where they can find friends. Our Riverside campus does better at this than we do. One of the reasons is they have to. Because they're a brand new work and, and they've got to have eyes for people that are outside the faith and, and be able to be welcoming to those people. Churches like ours that have been going for a number of years and, 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 and we could go the whole year and not reach anyone for Jesus and the bills would probably still be paid and but new works like that can't do that. So their very lifeblood is dependent upon that. So there's a sense of urgency there that sometimes we lose that sense of urgency in more established churches. God, help us. And Easter Sunday, they had a, a gentleman come to Riverside campus, and he walked in dressed in a dress. You know, I have no doubt of the 864 people that we had here on Easter Sunday that there was there was a gay person amongst us.
but we didn't know it because they looked like us and they dressed like us and they didn't flaunt it like this guy did. And this guy walks in in a dress and they give him a cup of coffee and they give him a donut and they introduce themselves to him and they engage him in conversation just like they engage the normal people. Besides, who more needs Jesus than a guy wearing a dress? Now, I don't know if that guy will ever come to Christ or not. But because he was included and accepted, and maybe he'll come back to Riverside, and maybe he'll continue to hear the word, and maybe the Holy Spirit will work in his life, and maybe he will open his heart to that. But he wouldn't come back to Riverside if he was talked about and laughed about in hallways and pointed to and shunned and nobody said anything to him and nobody looked at him, nobody made eye contact with him. People talk about vision. And I, I'm, I'm pretty lousy on this subject of vision because I, I, I always confuse vision and, and, and mission. I understand the mission of the church and what the vision of the church is is sometimes it, it really hurt, I really bog down because a lot of times people talk about vision and I say, no, that's mission. And I, so I really struggle here. It's a real inadequacy that I have as a pastor. But if I do have a, a, a vision, it, it, it would be that we would be a place that would be accepting, including, sensitive to, and have eyes for whether it's a guy in a dress or whether it's the adulterous woman that comes in. I want to pastor a church that there's such a culture in this church of these people need Jesus and I'm going to do whatever I can to be able to, to make it easy for them to receive Jesus, that we would do whatever we could, including starting a conversation with a guy who wears a dress. Chuck Swindoll in some of his writings has written something that, that is something that I think any church ought to be like. A bar, really. Look here. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is for the fellowship Christ wants to give in his church. It's an imitation dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. Let me tell you this, and I apologize beforehand, but I tell this to make a point, not to, just to be crude or crass. The second service on Easter Sunday, we had all the people raise their hands, and so many people come forward to me, and, and, and they wanted the, the, the Jesus of Easter to be able to change everything in their lives, and I was talking to, to them and inviting them to make an appointment with me this week, and I was standing right here and, and, and talking with people and praying somebody, and this guy came up to me right here. After I finished with this person, I turned to this guy, and I say this, not to be crass or crude, I just say this to let you know what happened. He looked at me square in the eye and says, I'm tired of all this shit. Let me tell you, if you're more concerned that I just cussed in church than you are for lost people, we have a problem. And what he was tired of was his drug addiction. I think of that when I say an unshockable fellowship. Because, I don't know about you, 
I used to talk that way. Doesn't shock me. Everybody always apologizes when they cuss in front of a pastor. I said, man, you're apologizing to the wrong person. I know more of them words than you do, probably. (laughs) It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes. Listen, the bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics. This is crucial. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. People don't go to bars to drink. People go to bars to be included, to have fellowship, to have some people around and, 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 you know, to have somebody say, Hey, Norm! <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool if people walked into this church and we just say, Hey, Norm! Hey, Joe! Hey, Mike! Am I, am I gone totally off the deep edge? Or should a church really be something like that? A place that doesn't dispense liquor, but dispenses grace. A place where you can know and be known and love and be loved. Included. Secrets will not be told. Laugh with, cry with. Hey, Norm! I want to pastor that church. I really do. I want to pastor. And maybe it's a fantasy. Maybe they're, they're, churches can't be like that. I don't know. But I, I'm just going to go to my grave, or at least my pastoral career, desiring and trying to mold and cast a vision for a culture of a church like that. You know, we do two things as a church, and I've tried to share this with you over the past months. We gather and we scatter. What I've been talking about so far is the gathering part of that. As as we gather, whether it's in a Sunday morning setting or it's a small group or Sunday school, we are welcoming, we're inclusive, we, 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 we have eyes for other people. And somebody sitting next to me and that I don't know, I just don't say, I wonder who this bird is right here. No, I go say, hi, my name's Mark. Because I'd do the same thing if somebody walked in my house and I didn't know them, I would be hospitable to them. But the, the gathering is only half of this thing. Scattering is the other half. What's the vision for a church as we scatter, as we go our own separate ways to our, to our different uh, areas of influence that we have in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families? What's the vision for, for, for scattering? If the vision for gathering is that we would be an unshockable inclusive, accepting place? What's the vision as we go our separate ways? Sam, Sam Schumacher was a, a 
Episcopal priest, priest, who's the priest of Calvary Episcopal Church in New York City for a long time, one of the founders of AA, died in about 60, 1963. And he wrote something that has gone across the world, and some of you will have heard this before, and I'm not going to be able to recite it word for word i used to know it like the back of my hand because it was kind of who i wanted to be and and through pastoring and and through being in a district office sometimes that gets put on the back burner but as i found it again this week i said that's it that's who i am right wrong or indifferent that's my heart and he wrote this poem called i stand by the door and it goes something like he said i stand by the door he says, I, I neither go too far in or stay too far out. This door is the most important door in the world, for it's through this door that men and women walk to find God. There's, there's, there's no use in me going way far in and staying there when there are so many still on the outside. So, so I stand by the door. One of the most tremendous things in the world is be able to help men and women find that door. The door that leads to God. One of the most important things that any person could ever do is to take one of those blind, groping hands that are looking for the door. They know there's a door, must be there somewhere, and to take one of those hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks to that person's own touch. In the end, there's not too much more important than helping people find the door and to open it and to enter it and to find him. So I stand by the door. Great saints, you go all the way in. Go all the way in. Go way up into the spacious attics and way down into his cavernous cellars. Some people have to explore the heights and depths of God and call back to the rest of us and tell us how wonderful and how beautiful it is. Sometimes I take a closer look, just I peek in just a little bit farther. But, but my place seems to be closer to the opening. So I stand by the door. There's another reason I stand there. Sometimes people get about partway in and they get afraid. Because God is a very great God and he asks for all of us. And they get a certain cosmic claustrophobia. And they want to get out, and somebody's got to stand by the door to be able to tell them they're, they're spoiled for their old life. Once you've had one taste of God, nothing else but God will ever do. Someone has to be there for those who are trying to get out and tell them that. So I stand by the door. I admire those people that go all the way in. But I wish they hadn't forgotten how it was before they got in. And then they could help people on the outside put their hand on that latch. As for me, I'll take my old accustomed place close enough to God to hear him and to sense him and to know that he is there but also close enough to men and women to hear them and to sense them and know that they are there 
where are they? They're, they're outside the door. Hundreds of them, thousands of them, millions of them. But more important for me and for you, one of them, two of them whose hand I am appointed to put on the latch. So I stand by the door and look for those who seek it. If we could be a church of a bunch of people like that, we would have such unbelievable influence in this community. And this community would be a far better place because of all the people who are outside the door that we have eyes for. And we bring them into this place and we include them and we accept them and we cry with them and we weep with them and we invite them to our small groups and our Sunday school classes. Oh, if this church would be able to recite that poem and say, we stand by the door. I want to pastor that church. Now, if you want a church to be a fortress that you come in and is really a protective place for your family and all of that, I'm not sure this is the right church for you. Because as long as I pastor this church, I want to cast a vision for a church that are looking for the people who are outside the door, just like I was one day. I want to look for the people who don't know what the red letters in the Bible mean. And the desire of my heart for you is the exact same thing. Now, we've been here two and a half years, and we're, I think we've taken some steps in those two and a half years. But we've got steps to take that we could be a place where unbelievers are comfortable, feel at home with their questions, with their doubts, with their disagreements. Almost every single change we've made, there's, there's been more change. I was told this week by the finance team, there's been more change and remodeling in the last two and a half years than gone on in the previous 10. And almost every one of those changes was not for you all. It was for them. There's 10 different changes that have happened out in the lobby, and, and they were for them, not for us that are inside. It's for those that are outside, because that's my heartbeat. Is it yours? <laughs> Is it yours? Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And if we're called to be Christ-like disciples, it's part of who we are as well. I want to pastor a church with a heartbeat for people outside the door. Let's pray together.
as we bow in prayer, pastors, would you come and prepare the elements for communion? Father, you have freely, freely accepted me all the crap that I brought to you. And I was included by a bunch of people at Sterling First Church of the Nazarene in Sterling, Illinois. And I was included by a bunch of people at Trinity United Methodist Church in Sterling, Illinois. And they put up with my messes and they loved me and answered all my stupid questions. And how can I do any less for those who are outside the door just like I was? Father, there are so many people in this room here that have stepped in that door and it's by your grace we've done that and we're so thankful. And Father, we want to know you and we want to sense you and we want to be close to you, but we also want to be close to people who are outside the door so we can have an influence on them. So Father, would you make us a, a, a community of people who may be a little more like the neighborhood bar than the average church? a bunch of people who, who stand by the door. And Father, we do that all for your glory because we noticed that it was you who hung out with the outcast. It was you who went to dinners with sinners. It was you who hung out with people that were not accepted in society. And Father, may we somehow in our own lives work that out for us as well. Now, with your heads bowed, um, the table is going to be prepared here for you. It is prepared. Maybe you don't even know what this represents. Maybe you're some of those people that are outside the door, and you don't know what the red letters mean, and you don't know what communion means. It's just Jesus said to do these, this in remembrance of him. It's just a symbol of his broken body on the cross and his shed blood on the cross. He could have been asked to be remembered in a lot of different ways, but he chose to be remembered by his death that made a door open that we could go to the Father. So we want to close this service this morning with, with communion. And we want to invite all those to be able to come who choose to do that. Maybe some of you want to pray around this altar before you receive or after you receive. In these next few minutes, you worship as you choose to worship. Father, we do bow before you, and we would ask that the words that have been preached, first of all, I ask that you would plant them in my heart. And it's so easy as I go about the duties of ministry and administrating a church and directing a staff and all this, that stuff, it's, sometimes it's hard to keep the main thing the main thing. And so I pray that you would do that in my heart and life. And I pray for this church as we continue to make changes and continue to try to make our services and our church more inclusive of people outside the door. 
I pray you grant us favor. We're probably going to make some mistakes on that and go a little too far one direction and we'll have to be corrected, but you know our heart is right. And our heart is just to do what you came to do, and that's to seek and to save those who are lost, those who are outside the door. So, Father, be with us as we continue to grow into the church you want us to be. Xenia Nazarene has been here for a long time, and she has constantly changed throughout the years. And it's as we kind of look to 2013 and 15 and 20 and beyond, see what kind of church that you want us to be and what kind of church that can continue make it, making an impact for the people of this community. Father, we pray for Carol Kane in the hospital this morning. Pray for Frances Shaw as she's recovering. We pray for Gary Wellborn with his journey with cancer. We pray for people that I've just forgotten about, and you know who they are. Father, thank you for your presence uh, here today. Thank you for these people around the altar that are praying. You, you know the desires of their heart. Would you answer their prayers in your way, in your time? Thank you for their desire to take a posture of humility here before you. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the one who died to make an open door available to us. Father, we pray all these things in his name. Amen and amen.